Let us pray. We come to you this morning, O Lord, and we bow before you as our Lord and our God. Easy words to say, but not always that easy to grasp. What does it mean to have a Lord? What does it mean to have a God? If we think about that for a moment, we need to think beyond what this world can offer. We think about what you have created. We think about the universe that surrounds us. And we are reminded that you are the one that gave us all and created it all. We are reminded that you are the God of power that made the sun and the moon. The creation that you gave to us on this planet to enjoy, but also to reflect your glory. To have a God is to recognize you for the mighty one, the all-powerful one, for our Father. And that is the most amazing thing, that we can come to you this morning and not be afraid of you, but step into your presence because you introduce yourself to us as a dad. You come to us in human form in your son, Jesus Christ, that we may understand we can relate to you. And I ask our Lord this morning, as we came to worship, recognize you, that you will use the words that I need to share so that we understand a little bit more about who you are and your love for us and your, and your, your commitment to us. Help us, O oh Lord, that as we hear, that we will not only take this for us, but also then go and share this with others. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that we can have this book in which we can find the words of God to us, knowing that this comes from you. Amen. So many times when I have couples come and see me and I do with them pre-medical counseling, I take a notepad and I go and sit with my notepad on my chair and I say, right, let's do the basic stuff. Full names, because I need to have their full names, so it's John, whatever, and Mary, whatever, I write down the full names. So you guys are getting married here at the church, yeah, it's at the church at 4 p.m., yeah, it's 4 p.m., whatever, and it's on the 19th of April or whatever, 19th of April, yeah, yeah, I said, okay. So you guys are going to get married on the 19th of April? Yes. So when are you guys going to get divorced? Then there's always this stunned silence. They look at me as if I'm crazy. They are here for premarital counseling, and I'm asking them when they're going to get divorced. Then I stay quiet for a moment. And then they sort of get restless, and they would say to me, but we're not going to get divorced. And I would say, why not? And then they look at each other and they say, that, we love each other so much. You know, they hold hands, they stare each other in the eye, and I can see how much they love them. Ooh, so wonderful, right. Then I say to them, and uh, I say to them, I'm really sorry, but do you know how many couples have sat in an office like this that said exactly what you now say to me, we are not going to get divorced. And they are not together anymore. And they all, when we're asked probably the question, why will you not get divorced, said, well, we love each other so much that this will never end. This relationship will, will continue as long as time, time, time stands, and we are, we are alive. I say to them, then normally, now my work with you starts. Because it seems to me that 
loving each other is not the guarantee that you think it's going to be. You see, the world sings about love, and the world talks about love, and we fall in love, and we have all these things that we understand about love, and we think that, that love, as we understand it, is what will keep us together in a relationship, and it's the thing that actually will change the world. People always say, you know, love changes the world. We to love more people, and everything will change. Well, we'll see about that. So I'm busy with my marks of the church, as we find it in the book of Colossians. So Paul wrote to the small congregation, believers. They were mostly people that came out of the pagan world, small number, surrounded by a world that didn't really like them that much. And in this first section of this book, he mentions the different things that's part of the church. That's who we are. So who are the church? The church are people that pray, are people that believe in the only holy living God, and the church are people that love. Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard is in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So who is the church then what love is concerned? So if anybody would come to me and say, okay, Ferdy, you, you have this church. A guy actually asked me last week, so what does Presbyterian mean? So I'll explain that to him. He's trying to understand the church. So if I need to explain the church to them, I say to them, but we are the people that love. We are people that have God's love in us, I think, will be a better statement. God's love then for us, but also then the love for him and that we need to have for others. Love is when you're sitting next to someone doing absolutely nothing and it means absolutely everything to you. Oh, so cute, isn't it? It's beautiful and it's true. But you, if you and I are very honest with one another today, we normally love people that are of some kind of benefit to us. I love my parents because they gave me life. <laughs> they gave me the stuff that I can live my life. They were part of my beginning from the beginning. Parents love their children because they help them to grow up and they look in their eyes and they are there and they give them a smile when they run around, whatever. Siblings, well, you know, we need to think about that. You know, a Sunday school teacher was telling the children, uh, teaching them the Ten Commandments, commandments and she said, so, so you, what does it mean to honor your father and your mother? And they talked about that a little bit. And then she said, so is there a commandment for siblings? Your brothers and your sisters. And one said, yeah, thou shalt not kill. As one little boy said, if Cain and Abel would have had their own rooms, they would not kill each other that much. But even siblings love each other because, you know, at least you can irritate this guy that's in your family that's, that's part of your life. And then you see someone and you really like to look at this person. Then you like to be with this person because this person makes you feel good. And this person listens to you. And this person adds something to your life. So of you and I are very honest. Think at all. Think about all the people that you love. And at the end of the day, you can tell me they bring a benefit to you. There's something that they bring into your life that's of a benefit. But look at this guy on the screen. He's a murderer. He's in a prison in California. 
And while he was in prison, he just killed another guy also, just for the sake of it. Look what's tattooed above his eyes, three sixes. That's according to the book of Revelation, the mark of Satan, the Antichrist. So this guy walks around with the mark of the Antichrist on his forehead. So I ask myself the question, no, don't read that now. So I ask myself the question, so, so if this guy caused any harm to anyone in my family or anyone that I know, how much will I love this guy? Or do I say to myself, he needs to rot in prison because that's where he should, should be. Look at him. That's what, what he deserves. Paul comes and he says in Romans 5, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? So Paul is setting us up for something that is quite shocking to people, that they do not really want to hear. And that is that we are not that great. A week or four ago, maybe six, maybe ten, I don't know. I was talking to someone, he said to me, you know that I'm not really religious. I said, yeah. You know that I don't really believe in God. I said, yeah, I know that also. Do you know what he said to me then? But I'm a good person. But I'm a good person. I said to him, well, I'm so sorry, your goodness will not help you if you face God. That will not help you. The problem is the moment when we define ourselves as good, what do we use as a standard for this goodness? Do I define myself now as good because I have not yet killed anyone? Because I'm kind to all people? I help them across the street, you know, and I feed my dog, and I'm kind to my wife and my children, sort of, and I work hard at work, and I don't steal the pencils and the pens. So I'm a good person overall. I even tip the people that gives me uh, good food at a restaurant. These are all worldly definitions for what we assume are good. And therefore, if I think that's the standard of living, so if you do these things, you are a good person. So God is supposed to be good with me because I am good with myself. I've got really bad news. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Paul was really a bit <laughs> upset here, I think. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What is Paul trying to say here? Before Paul starts to talk about the love that God has for us, he says we need to understand who we are and who is being loved here. You see, mostly we think that we deserve God's love, that I'm quite an okay person. Hey, Lord, you know, look at me. I'm not that bad. You're supposed to love me. There must be a benefit for you to love me. What benefit do you think I add to God? To be very honest, I can be preaching for 40 years, but I don't think I am a benefit to God in any way because God can do whatever He wants. He can have the rocks preach if He wants to. He can send an angel if He wants an angel to come and preach. He can do whatever He wants. I can't walk around on this planet and say, because I'm sort of a kind, okay guy, I think, I hope Luis also thinks the same, uh, that I am supposed to show up before God and say, Hey God, with respect, I need to be allowed in because look at how great I am. 
What Paul tells us is that, in a sense, we are not that different from the murderer. What Paul tells us is that we live our lives without ever really thinking about God enough and honoring His person enough and giving Him the glory that He should have. What Paul is trying to tell us and what the Bible is trying to tell us is that, guys, we need to be saved because we are not so great as we think we are. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to come. Because we are not this great. And therefore we have this word in Greek that says, agape is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. The highest love possible. So why does God love you and me? Because it's part of His character. It's who God is as it's here in John. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And therefore, I need to start my sermon then today by saying to you, if I say that the church are people that are people of love, then I need to understand that love starts with God loving me. And God loves me as a sinner. God loves me as a broken person. There is nothing that I can do that can chase God away. Because I've done enough. And that to me is the most revealing and the most wonderful message that I can bring to people. I've had countless of people in my office saying to me, I'm not sure if God can love me because I've done so much wrong in my life. And I can say to that person, there's nothing that you can do that can shock God. Nothing. Nothing. As much as God needs patience for you, He needs patience for me because we are all before God sinners and broken people. And only if you understand this, only if you and I really, really understand this, then this can happen. Then I can recognize Him in who He is. That He's a God that loves and cares for me. Then I recognize that this God is just not another body of mine, that this God can be in a way manipulated, but this God is actually a God that knows my whole story. And even though He knows my whole story, He says to me, Ferdy, to you the offer is also there. To be part of my family, to be Part, part of my church, to be part of my kingdom, to be part of my fold. The church are people that recognize and appreciate His love and care. We assume that God should give. Our assumptions are sometimes very wrong. There's no need for God to give us anything. There's no need for God to give. If we would look at how we live our lives and how little attention we sometimes give Him during the day, during our week, why must He surround us with so much grace, kindness, and blessings? But He does. And therefore, in the mornings when you and I wake up, what we should do is we, would immediately, we should immediately thank the living Lord and say, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving me enough that I can see and enjoy and be a part of this, what's going on in the world around me today. Help me. Be with me. Because part of God's presence in our lives is based on His, on His love for us. But then also part of understanding God's love is to obey His word. You see, First John, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commandments. When I was a, a child, my parents once told me, you need to love God. I didn't understand it. I loved my dog. Because my dog went missing for a day or two. And I was really upset. I was this big. 
And when my dog came back, I was really happy. And I thought to myself, how do you love someone that you can't see? I love my dog, I want to hug the thing. But God, how do, you, how do you love someone that you can't see? I can't, with respect, hug God. The Bible tells me I love God by understanding who God is, by understanding His story, and understanding what He's doing for me, and then by responding to that love, by doing His will, by actually being living in obedience to what God asks of me, because by doing this, I'm giving Him value. If you don't give someone value in your life, you will not listen to that person. God says, you want to respect me? You want to value what I give you? Live within my will. So I ask. Because then I can protect you. Then I can protect my name and my kingdom. Because in a sense, as God steps into our worlds, He gives Himself to us and He says, you can do with my name whatever you please. You can drag my name through the mud if you live like someone that says you know me and you don't live like someone that knows me. Or you can lift my name up by living that someone, like someone that knows me and lives like someone that knows me. The second part, then I'm done. Church people love other people with the love of God. But, this is where the church failed. I think this is the big, biggest failure of the church in this time that we now live. People put this on the sign, and it's okay to put it on your sign that God loves people. Countless of rallies take place, and people march and have all these banners, God loves you. Fine. But it sounds like pixie dust. It is as if I walk around in this world, and I come by someone, and I say, God loves you. Pixie dust. It's like it's Cinderella. Woo! Now you've got God's love over you. Wee! You can go on. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. God is not the God that is a God of pixie dust that comes to this world and says, Woo, everything is fine with respect. That is not the God that I believe in and you believe in. God's love is a love to save. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I can't just tell people, God loves you. I need to tell people, God loves you, and therefore He wants you in His fold. He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to repent. But you can't preach about repentance anymore. It's offensive in this world that we now live. I can't tell anyone that your lifestyle is wrong. I can't tell anyone that you live outside of biblical values. Then I'm the one that's now a hate speaker or a hate preacher or whatever, and I'm all bad because I'm making people feel bad because God tells me He loves me. And by knowing that God loves me, I can continue my life as I want, as I please, and I may never see the face of God when I die because I don't know Him. Sorry I get so upset about this, but it really angers me because countless of times in my life I sat in meetings. I sat in a mission meeting many years ago. Don't want to tell you where it was. And there was a guy that was standing on the stage, and he said, God loves all people. And somebody said, you know, uh, you know but what about Jesus? He said, how can we say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? God loves all people. At the mission conference, then the church has no value, no word to speak anymore. If God loves all people, then everybody's going to heaven. Why are you, why are you in church?
God loves all people. Why do we have a cross on Calvary? Why did Christ have to die a terrible, horrible, painful death if God just says, I love you all? Of course God loves all people. For what reason? For them to be saved. How do you get saved? You get saved by bowing down and accepting the fact that God's request is for you to come back to Him. And you can't be the same person. can't stay the same if you are in the presence of God. Because it's not about you anymore, it's about God. So what do we need to do as, church, as Christians? How do we love people? I love people by connecting with them, by, by going out of my way to connect with a guy that has three sixes over his eye. To connect with him. And then to invite him into the presence of the almighty, only, holy, living God. Because by sitting just there and saying to him, God loves you, will not make an inch of a difference in that man's life. What that guy needs to know is, I need God and I need to step towards God and that's what I need to do. I need to point and introduce Jesus Christ because that is what the whole gospel and story of God is all about. This book, Love Letter, from God to us, but it's a story of Jesus that starts in the book of Genesis and ends in the book of Revelation. It's still the story of Jesus. And that's our task as the church. If we say we love the world, invite them in, connect with them, have fun with them, but remind them always it's about Christ. And then you start to share your own faith. How your understanding of who God is and your own brokenness has brought yourself to grasp what God wants to give us. And then you can help people with needs and all the other things, with self-sacrificing and patience and respect. Um, I was on a mission trip in the Amazon many years ago. We got on the ship and we started sailing up the Amazon. And before we left, I asked the guy who was organizing this thing, so do we have any material to hand out about Christ? He said, no, it's a sort of more a medical thing. Taking clothes and whatever and all kinds of stuff. I contacted the Brazilian church here in, in, in Orlando, and I said, I need as much material as you can get, and they gave me boxes full of material. Because as the ship docked wherever we were in this small little villages, I was the only one that handed out anything about Christ. They gave them medical help, and they gave them clothing and some other things, but no one spoke a word about Jesus. I thought to myself, what difference is this now from just one of the other organizations out there that does good work. Our task is to do good work with Christ in hand. Good work with Jesus in hand. Now do we love? I'm not going to read this. You can go and read this. That is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We know that very well. So what do I tell a couple that sits in my office and they want to have a 40-year, 50-year long relationship? I do with them a lot of work um, um, about expectations and about communication and, and all kinds of things, practical things. I give them tools that they may be able to, to survive this world because it's very complicated. But I always tell them, I'm a person of faith and you're asking me to marry you and I'm a pastor and I believe in God because God is as real to me as you sitting in front of me. So let me tell you what the real answer is. The answer is, to live your life within the will of God and within the love of God, and you guys can make it. Because only if you love in the way that God loves us, 
If you're loving the way that God asks of us to love each other, then only then your relationship will last. Because then you will start to serve one another. Then it will be an agape love. It will be a love where I will try to outserve my spouse in our relationship. I will wash the dishes before she can because I would like to make her, light, her work light, lighter. I, I, will, I will make the bed and I will do this and this because everybody's trying to outserve the other one in relationship because that's what Christ came to do, isn't it? He came to outserve us. And then, how are you going to stay, stay strong? By making promises not to each other only, but to God. Because if you make a promise to God, that will last forever. My wife can be wherever she is. I can be wherever I am. My promise is made to God, not to her only, but to God first. Then I don't need to worry ever about trusting anyone else. Because there's a commitment not only to each other, but to God. Therefore, if we can live in the love of God, in the way that God wants us to love, we can change the world, and it starts at home. Between you and your spouse, between you and your family, between you and your neighbors. Amen.